The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. On July 20th, 1916, poet Ezra Pound wrote to a friend, quote, I am mailing you McHale's Latin literature. It is in many ways untrustworthy and vicious. Catullus, Propertius, Horace, and Ovid are the people who matter. Catullus most. Virgil is a second-rater, a Tennysonianized version of Homer. Catullus has the intensity. End quote. He was a 2,000-year-old poet as striking to the 20th century mind as he had been to his own era. For a thousand years he was lost, barely referenced, his poems unknown, until their rediscovery reignited his reputation. Today, he's considered a lyricist worthy of being mentioned along with Burns and Shelley. We know almost nothing about him, for sure. One of our stray facts is that he was born north of Rome in Verona, the city of Romeo, of course, and like Romeo, we know that Catullus was in love. The difference is that Catullus was not just a good lover. He was a good hater, too. One of the late Roman Republic's greatest figures, Catullus, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. My thanks to you for joining me today. We are getting a lot of notes about our Rupert Holmes episode. Thank you for the feedback and my speculation about the Pina Colada song. As the rare pop song whose story can make you cry, well, we have an update on that. I should have mentioned Cats in the Cradle, which made another one of my friends sob back in college. Poor college students. It can be a rough time as people take one last look back before they launch forward into the world. Isn't that how it feels? College students, like you're in a plane and you're about to parachute out into your new future, and you take one last look at the people around you up there in the plane, the ones who came along, your parents, your high school friends, everyone who has been with you on this journey so far. And for some people, They look around and think, oh, my dear old dad, what was it about us that made us fight so much? Or maybe, I'm really going to miss you, Mom, and I'm sorry for what I did. Cats in the Cradle gets to people, maybe in college, maybe later, when they become parents themselves. Or when their marriage gets a little stale, as in the Pina Colada song. Okay, we are in that realm now of lyrics that get right to you. Got to Ezra Pound, that intensity got to Robert Frost, too, who said these words have hardness. Catullus was his favorite ancient poet. One difference between our singer-songwriters today, people like Rupert Holmes and Harry Chapin, and those others, all those others, too, I suppose there are blues lyrics and country songs that are just as sad or even sadder. Strange fruit. My goodness. The, The difference we have is that we don't have music, just words, which I'm bringing up because the great forerunner of Catullus was Sappho, the Greek poet from the island of Lesbos, who, of course, did have music with her words, as we heard during our Sappho episode all the way back in episode four, I think. Those words, though, have been lost, or the music has been, have been, let me start over, the music 
has been lost to us today. When Quintalis renamed his love, for reasons we will get into, he gave her the pseudonym Lesbia. Probably not a reference to what we now call lesbianism, although maybe that was there too. He knew Sappho's works well. I think it was more of a tribute. I'll give you a a pseudonym from one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite poets. In fact, the great woman poet that I know of. This is Catullus talking. I think of you and her in the same category, Claudia. Sappho was writing about 500 years before Catullus. Rome, in Sappho's time, was still a kingdom, about to become a republic, which it remained for about 500 years. Catullus was there at the end of this period. We don't know if he actually saw the end of it. Tradition is that he didn't. We really don't know much about Catullus's life. His one biographer, Suetonius, I guess there were a few biographers, but Suetonius was writing, the main one, was writing from a hundred years distance. What we know about Catullus mostly comes from his poetry. He writes about his brother dying, which we only know from his poems about it, and he refers to some historical events events that kind of pin the dates down for us, that those let us know that he was alive from 55 to 54 BC, at least. Generally, his dates are given as having been born in 84 BC and living to 54 BC, dying when he was 30. But Suetonius said other counts claimed that he lived to be 71 years old, and it's possible that Catullus just stopped writing poetry at the age of 30 or fell out of the public eye. Maybe he was writing for himself only then. We just don't know. I've heard some speculation that people like to think of their poets as dying young, and that has contributed to the feeling that he was probably 30 when he died, or or at least that people like to think of their poets as writing poetry up until their death. And so, not living for 41 years beyond that, that's something people don't want to think of. Easier to think that he died when he put down his pen. Suetonius had access to information and stories much closer than we are going to get, and he didn't know for sure, so we will have to go with our speculation, as we do with much else in Catullus's life. Well, what else do we know for sure? He was born in Verona. His father was successful from what is called the equestrian class, which probably to your ear sounds like it has something to do with horses, and in fact, it does. Originally, this was the Roman cavalry, meaning uh, those who had enough means to have a horse during wartime, and this class became merchants and landowners and so on, and they, they fit in to Roman society just one notch below the senatorial class. His father hosted famous people from well-connected families, including one Julius Caesar, who at the time of Catullus's writing was waging successful campaigns abroad and had not yet taken over Rome as emperor. Hadn't crossed the Tiber yet, but he was on the way. Catullus hates Caesar. He writes some savage poems about him, as well as other major figures, and it's sometimes thought to show that Catullus was either resentful of Caesar's crossing the Tiber and ending the Republic, but that's anachronistic. That's a mistake. This was before that. It couldn't have happened that way. But it's possible that Catullus saw the sort of conditions that that ended up producing Caesar. 
and saw how Caesar himself was going to play into that. Maybe that was predictable. Here's a very ambitious guy with no scruples. I've met him, and I see what he's capable of. He thinks he's bigger than the great Roman Republic himself. Seems dangerous. Maybe that's maybe that was somewhere in Catullus's mind. Or maybe he just didn't like the guy. Thought he was vain. Thought he was full of himself. Thought he was giving being given too much credit. Maybe he was jealous and resentful. Who knows? Catullus was friends or acquaintances with other dignitaries, too. He knew Cicero and Pompey. He writes poems about them. He knew fellow poets and so on. But what we really know him for are, well, first of all, there's one lesser relationship in his surviving poems with a young man named Juventus, a same-sex relationship. But the major relationship in the poetry is with Lesbia, who in the poems is older, married from a more prestigious family and who loves Catullus back. They seem to have had an affair and that seems to have been broken off. He calls her Lesbia to disguise her true identity, but scholars have pieced together that her real name was Clodia. I think Ovid might have given us that clue. And the name Clodia narrows things down to a handful of possibilities, all of them intriguing, including three sisters who were all called Clodia and who were all scandalous. But the one through textual clues that most scholars have settled on as being the most likely of the Clodias was the sister called Clodia Metellus, sometimes Clodia Metelli. She was known as a dangerous beauty who had, in fact, orchestrated the poisoning of her own husband, according to the scandal mongers of the day, Medea of the Palatine, Cicero called her. She had another nickname, too, Quadrantaria, or Quarter, which was the price of a visit to the public baths. You can use your imagination to fill in why people called her that. She may have been viewed as a prostitute by her critics, but she wasn't, an, or slurred as one, but she wasn't an ordinary streetwalker. She was well-educated in Greek and philosophy. She wrote poetry herself. And she was part of an ancient patrician family, one of the most distinguished in Rome. In fact, her marriage to her first cousin was not a happy one. She had affairs with several other men, including married men and including slaves. Then her husband died and she was alleged to have poisoned him. One more point about Clodia. Cicero attacked her in a trial. Now, hopefully this won't get too confusing. After her husband died, she was alleged to have poisoned him, she remarried. And then she accused her new husband of trying to poison her. Cicero took up his defense, represented Clodia's husband. Partly this was out of self-interest, as he hated Clodia's brother, who was one of his greatest political rivals. So in this trial, as he was defending his client, Cicero accused her of being drunk and an inveterate seducer and said there were rumors that she had an incestuous relationship with her brother, which was sort of a two birds with one stone maneuver by Cicero, take down your rival while you're defending your client. Cicero, with his canny little rhetorical sophistication, would say things like, I'm referring now to Clodia's husband. I, I mean brother. Oh, I'm always making that mistake. Get it? Wink, wink, nod, nod. He said, I'm not going to quarrel with a woman who all men consider a friend and not an enemy. Get it? All men 
consider her a friend. And yet, this is why I'm going into all this, why we're taking this little detour. And yet Plutarch, writing later, said that Cicero's own marriage was rocky because his wife suspected him of misconduct. And in fact, the misconduct she suspected was that he was having an illicit affair with Clodia. <laughs> I, want, I want that to be true. Oh, I want that to be true. Hollywood screenwriters, here you go. Here's my gift to you. Set this scenario in ancient Rome. Set it in the present day. Set it wherever you like. A famous lawyer defends his client by attacking his client's accuser for being bawdy and licentious, a woman of loose morals, shall we say. And this famous lawyer's wife suspects him, the lawyer, the defense lawyer, of having an affair with that very accuser. It gives you a taste of what Clodia was like to the ancient Romans in this late Republic setting. And Catullus, who seems to have been her lover, writes 25 poems to her and about her. It's the most famous thing about him and his poetry, these love poems where he loves her and hates her too. He's desperate for her and desperate to quit her. And it's the humanness of this side of love that has come down through the ages. Catullus is also direct in other ways, not just love. He'll attack a rival and say his armpits smell like goats and that kind of thing. He can be very scatological, which for me is not always him at his best. I like the idea of it more than I like the actual poems. I like the idea because I like that this guy was writing what he wanted, writing from the heart, shooting from the hip, not putting on his poet's wreath or whatever they wore when they wanted to be serious. Today we might say he put on his necktie, or maybe he, he slipped into his black turtleneck sweater, or something like that, <laughs> whatever poets wear when they're trying to be serious, when they raise their eyebrows and talk in those arch tones. He wasn't writing, Catullus wasn't writing the the kind of occasional poem like we are gathered here today on this great occasion to pay tribute to our grand and noble system of government and the soldiers who have endured such sacrifice to preserve it and that kind of thing. No, it's, it's, hey, you know that guy who's loving your woman? He's got the gout and his armpits smell like goats. Whenever they have sex, they're getting what they deserve. He's doubled over with his gout and she's doubled over with the stench from those goat-like pits of his. That's the kind, that's a, that might be a whole poem, that subject. It's a kind of, of refreshing snarl. You can see why so much of Latin literature, which seems carved in marble, falls to one side in favor of Catullus's lines, which aren't carved, they're scrawled, and they're not in marble. They're angrily written on a, a piece of parchment, shoved under someone's door, or maybe they're written on the door. Poems crying out with hunger, like graffiti. Cries in the night. We'll get to one in particular. It's just two lines that's like that. Okay. Did we cover everything? We covered just about everything we know about his life that doesn't come out of the poems. We'll have the poems after the break. We know he had a house on a lake. Did I mention that? Lake Garda. And we know he went on a sea voyage to Bithynia, which was over, which was uh, over there by what we now know as Turkey. And we know from the poems, at least, that his brother died and he returned from Bithynia. Okay. Actually, you know what? Let's hear from Suetonius. 
This is his entry on Catullus. It's not too long. I'll read it because it's going to give us the facts of Catullus's life and give us a description of his poetry with some analysis of his poetry. But it's a portrait of how Catullus was viewed in not quite his own time, but much closer to his own time. What he meant to the rest of Rome after Catullus's writings, when Catullus was still well-known and his writings were widely available. This is before the great period where Catullus was lost for a thousand years, which I'll describe as well. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll hear how Catullus's poetry and his life stood out to a historian writing from the early imperial era, looking back at what things were like in the late Roman Republic. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. It's from Suetonius, Lives of the Twelve Caesars. Caius Valerius Catullus was born at Verona, B.C. 87, about 17 years before Virgil and 22 before Horace. His father, Valerius, was of a respectable municipal family in that city and lived in habits of intimacy with Julius Caesar, who appears when his affairs led him to visit or pass through Cisalpine Gaul to have taken up his abode at the house of Valerius. Catullus left his paternal roof at an early age for Rome, where he plunged into dissipation and extravagance, mortgaged his estate, and fell into great poverty. His pecuniary misfortunes do not seem to have broken his spirit or abated his good humor. He laughs off his mortgage with a pun and jokes on his poverty with the utmost indifference. However, to improve his fortune, he, together with his brother, accompanied the praetor, Memmius, to Bithynia. This expedition, as respects the object our poet had in view, was completely unsuccessful. He returned as poor as he went, and on his voyage home had the additional misfortune to lose his brother, to whom he was affectionately attached, and who died on the coast of Troy. The death of his brother he deplores on more than one occasion in his works with great pathos, and in a style of natural and genuine feeling. 
The voyage from Bithynia home was performed by sea in a small open craft. A voyage of that length in so fragile a bark satisfactorily proves that Catullus was not deficient in at least one Roman virtue, a contempt of danger. From the time of his return, he continued to reside mostly at Rome, pursuing his pleasures, though living, as we collect from his writings, in poverty. He possessed two estates, probably of little value. He had one patron, Suetonius describes. Notwithstanding his poverty, he lived in intimacy with all the men of talent of his day. Cicero is supposed by some to have pleaded a cause for him. Good critics, however, deny or doubt the fact. Judging from his writings and the freedom with which he indulges in satire without regard to the rank, power, or wealth of the object of it, we may fairly pronounce that Catullus possessed a lofty, independent spirit. His boldest fight was against Julius Caesar, even in the plenitude of his power. He lashed the extravagance and his partiality for Mamura with unsparing severity. For this, however, he afterwards apologized, and the generous conqueror invited the poet to his table on the same day, and still continued his intercourse with his father, Valerius. Of all the poet's favorites, Clodia, who appears under the feigned name of Lesbia, seems to have enjoyed the greatest share of his affection and of the effusions of his muse. His lines on the death of Lesbia's sparrow are perhaps as well known as any verses he ever wrote. In his day, Catullus bore the character of a learned person. This he perhaps obtained from his knowledge of the Greek language and from the translations he made of some of the odes of Sappho and the poems of Callimachus. A considerable part of the writings of Catullus is supposed to be lost. He died, according to some, at the age of 40 or thereabouts. According to others, he attained the advanced age of 71. The concurrent testimony of all the men of wit and learning of his own and after times establishes his character as a man of first-rate talents and a true poet. He possessed a brilliant imagination and clothed his thoughts in the best language. His style is easy and unaffected. He is always free from conceit, conceit or bombast. His lines are full of sweetness and harmony. In his playful moods, he has many touches of humor and is always entertaining and agreeable. When pathetic, his feelings are natural and unrestrained. Many of his thoughts have been borrowed by subsequent writers. He fell into the vice of his age, and several of his pieces are degraded by the most obscene ideas couched in the most revolting expressions. The only palliation for this offense that can be offered is the manners of the times, when the grossest violations of propriety were overlooked, if not encouraged, by those whose power, wealth, and influence enabled them to set the fashion. Catullus was the first who naturalized many of the more beautiful species of Greek verse, and Horace can only claim the merit of having extended the number. At the same time, most of his shorter poems bear deep impress of original invention, are strikingly national, and have a strong flavor of the old Republican roughness. Even when he employs foreign materials, he works them up in such a manner as to give them a Roman air and character and thus approaches much more nearly to Lucretius and the ancients than to the highly polished and artificial school of Virgil and the Augustans. 
Hence arose the great popularity he enjoyed among his countrymen, as proved by the long catalogue of testimonies from the pens of poets, historians, philosophers, men of science, and grammarians. Okay, that comes from The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Suetonius. Not a bad recommendation. I love the... uh, the in, I'm intrigued by that a strong flavor of the old Republican roughness. Maybe things in the empire, maybe they miss democracy a bit. The to and fro, the, the freedom to satirize. Hmm. Maybe that's what comes along with democracy, people. <sighs> a, little, a little extra freedom. And you can see it reflected in the poetry. It's hard to believe that such a poet, with praised as highly as Catullus, was lost for a thousand years. Isn't it? Well, let's take our final break, and then we'll hear the circumstances of that, and we'll hear plenty of Catullus's actual poetry. All that after this. As we heard, Catullus's poetry was famous for a few hundred years in Rome, revered by fellow poets. It was viewed as both the forerunner to the later poets like Virgil and Marshall, but also in some ways superior, more natural, more erotic and earthly, more genuine. That intensity that Pound celebrated was not unknown to the ancients, and yet his poems were almost completely lost. From the 2nd or 3rd century, he was known only by references to him. There was only one known poem of his that you could read in a 9th century anthology. It was about marriage. Not even one of the more famous of his topics. It wasn't Caesar, it wasn't Lesbia, it wasn't Juventus, not invective against his enemies. And then, after this gap from 300 to 1305, I think it was, early in the 1300s, a stray manuscript was found in Verona, the city of his birth. A manuscript that contained copies of over 100 of Catullus's poems, and that copy was then lost. Luckily, before it was lost, they had made two copies of it. One of them wound up in Oxford, where it is still in the Bodleian Library. Thank God they know how to preserve books up there in Oxford. Because the other copy that was made was lost. <laughs> that one, we think, was owned by Petrarch at one point. Petrarch v- viewed the discovery of Catullus as something like a miracle. He loved it, loved the poems. And yet the manuscript he had was lost. Other Renaissance poets loved Catullus when they read him to Robert Herrick, John Milton. The praise went on up through the centuries. I think it helped that it was written in Latin, which people were learning, and the poems were short and and on some accessible topics. Some teachers probably wished they weren't so, so frankly erotic and obscene, but others maybe enjoyed those in private, even if not with students. And in any case, it's always easier to give your young and bored student a poem about a man calling a rival lover's armpits goat-like to keep them awake. Good teaching tools. That copy of Petrarch's, by the way, was copied twice before it was lost. So we have a few early copies that survive, but they're, they're copies of copies. And there were errors and amendments and additions to each of the four early editions. And so scholars have had to kind of 
piece them all together without even having the benefit of the original version that had been found in Verona. So we think we know what that manuscript was, but we don't know whether we don't know much about that manuscript anyway. We don't know whether Catullus had any hand in the ordering of the poems, or if not him, then who it was who put them together in this order. There are 113 or so poems, which are arranged into roughly three sections. Opinions differ about exactly which poems belong in the middle section. So you'll sometimes see different descriptions of how long the middle section is and and how long the sections are on either side of the middle section. The first 60 are lyrics. Many of the lesbia poems are here. Then there are some longer works in the middle. This is the part in dispute, but in any case, there are fewer than 10 of these. And these poems are often about marriage. And then come the third section, which is mostly epigrams. It also has some lesbia poems in this section. These are short in this third section, ranging from two lines at a minimum to 26 lines at the longest. The first poem of the entire volume is a kind of dedication which does make it seem like someone arranged these with some thought. It's the one you would write for the start of a book, or you would select it from a group of poems to serve as the first poem in a book. We'll skip over that one, because we want to go to poems two and three, famously about Lesbia and her sparrow, which apparently she kept. We're talking about Clodia now, but she's called Lesbia in in the poems. Apparently she kept... This sparrow is kind of a pet. They really need to be read back to back to get a sense of Catullus's charisma as a poet. One note here, the final stanza refers to the myth of Atlanta, in which a young princess known for being swift of foot, swift of foot, fast, as we might say, swift of foot if you're, if you're reading about myths in the 19th century. She was a fast princess, a good runner, Atlanta, who said, I'll only get married if someone beats me in a race. And an enterprising man, instead of erasing her and losing, as most of the suitors were doing, an enterprising man rolled out a golden apple, and Atlanta stopped to pick it up. Maybe because she wanted to, wanted to get married. Catullus, of course, thinks something similar. Who wouldn't? Thinks, who wouldn't want to get married? What virgin princess doesn't look forward to her wedding night? And the undressing that occurs, isn't that an alleviation of a burden, kind of like my pent-up desires, too? That's sort of how Catullus is looking at the myth and using it in this poem. Okay, let's hear the poem. This is Catullus 2. Lesbia's sparrow, the playmate she cradles against her breasts and holds in her lap and cruelly teases with her fingertips to provoke another peck-peck attack. When Catullus's desire shines too bright and Lesbia's not feeling it, laughing about something precious offers a little solace for her pain, maybe. If I could play with you, Sparrow, I might find some relief from my troubles too, a lightning. I'd be as grateful as the virgin girl was to the golden apple that undid the tight sash she'd worn too long. There we go. That's number two. And then here's number three. Just as we're imagining this this lover with this little sparrow kind of playing with the sparrow, letting it peck her finger, coaxing it into pecking her finger, 
Some translations have it as coaxing. Here's what we get in the very next poem. Catullus 3. Who loves beauty, veil her statues, veil Venus, her attendant cupids, Lesbia's plaything, Lesbia's sparrow is dead. Dearer to her than her two eyes, sweeter than honey, closer even than the young girl to her mother, in her lap or at her breast, hopping from one shoulder to another, cheeping continually to its mistress alone has now hopped solitarily down that dark alleyway of no return, evil shadows of the underworld. Orcus, who swallows up all beautiful things, needless act, a small bird, to close in on Lesbia's sparrow and swelling my girl's veiled eyes, which redden with tears. Hmm. There we go. The sparrow dies and Catullus is suddenly... Sweetness personified. His heart's breaking for his lesbia. He's very tender in this one. That will not always be the case, as we'll hear. Here's number five, which is a good carpe diem or seize the day poem. Catullus five. Lesbia, let us live and let us love and laugh at the gray old men who are scandalized by us. Suns will go down and come up again, on and on forever, but not us. Our brief little lives will be snuffed out before we know it. Let's have one infinite night. Kiss me a thousand times, then a hundred, then a thousand more, then a second hundred, a thousand after that, and then another hundred, and then, when we've piled up the hundreds and thousands, we'll keep going. Everything up in the air now, so many, we lose track beyond the reach of some hater who wants to limit us by counting up to some precise figure. No one can measure the sum of our kisses. Hmm. Nice little twist there. It seems a little kindergartenish in the middle. That's been a, a common criticism. A thousand, then a hundred, then a thousand, then another hundred. And to keep going with that, we get it, poet. A lot of kisses. It's like saying, I'll bring you a, I love you so much, I'll bring you a dozen roses, and then another dozen, and then 50 roses, and then 12 more, and then six more, and then a hundred, and then 10. It sounds like someone with, <laughs> with brain damage or something. Okay, we get it. You're in love. You're overflowing with it. You can't contain yourself. Why don't you why don't you just tell us how many kisses at the beginning? Add them all up. We don't need a hundred and thousand and then a hundred, but that's the point. That's the point, isn't it? It's not just that the poet's words are failing him in his overflow of love and emotion. It's that kisses can be like that, countable until they're not. Countable until they are. Not. What's the point when the number no longer matters, when the act of kissing turns from a countable noun into a non-countable one? It's a progression. And by the way, it's not captured by counting anyway. There's no sum, there's no amount. It's infinite and unmeasurable. It's more, and it's more than just two pairs of lips pressing together X number of times. We're falling into the deep passion here and entering the realm of the gods. But it's not always happy time in Catullus' world. Here's number eight, often referred to as poor Catullus. Catullus eight. 
Catullus, you loser, quit kidding yourself. Break off now and cut your losses. There was a time when the sun shone on you all day long, when you followed a girl here and there, loved by you as no one has ever been loved. You lusted for her too, and she lusted back. From sun up to sundown, it was as good as it gets. Now her lust is gone, dried up. So stop yourself. Stop wanting her, you jerk. Don't chase after her like some desperate dog. It's a mirage. Be firm. Be resolute, Catullus. Ta-ta, lesbia. Catullus is done. Won't be here for you. Won't miss you. Won't come looking for you. Catullus doesn't crave it anymore. You'll miss Catullus. I can hear you whining. Who's going to show up for visits now? Who's going to caress you? Who will call you pretty? Who will you kiss? Whose lips will you bite? Stand firm, Catullus. Enough. Break. <laughs> oh, I love these poems. I love the those I love when Catullus refers to himself. Poets will sometimes translate these lines to I or me, like, you'll miss me, but I like, you'll miss Catullus. And I especially like it when he harangues himself. Hang on, Catullus, or knock it off, Catullus, you jerk, <laughs> you loser. Catullus, you madman, why are you so desperate and clingy? Just stop. That kind of tone, that kind of urgency, that kind of, of soul-bearing, he contradicts himself, he pivots to change his mind, he lives in doubts, and he does it all on the page. He does it, we see it happening. He's complex, he contradicts himself, he, well, he contains multitudes, as Whitman might put it. Here's one. Speaking of contradicting himself, or containing multitudes, or being complex, this might be his most famous poem. It's just two lines long. Number 85. Catullus. 85. I hate and I love and I don't know why, but that's how I feel, and I am tortured. What a marvelous poem. It's saying, oh, enough about you. What about me? Here's me. Here's me, bare, naked, quivering, Soul exposed, I could praise your eyes and your cheeks and your walk and your laugh and talk about your sparrow, and I could condemn you for abandoning me for that other loser I've seen you walking through town with, but really, doesn't it all just come down to this? I hate and I love and I don't know why. One would think that I would hate you or that I would love you. And I feel both, and it drives me insane. And for people who've been in love, they know that this guy is spitting truths. Love might fade eventually, but it's so often hate. Love accompanied immediately by hate. And the hate that you feel upon rejection, most likely, but that hate doesn't erase the love, as you might think. You might think you only have room for one, right? You might think that... That if you love, that that would mean you can't hate. Love would preclude hate, but it doesn't. And you might think that hate would erase the love, but it doesn't. They fuse together. Oh, lesbia, I'm so angry at you now. Poor Catullus. And yet, if this were real life, 
if I love the poem, but if this were real life, I'd probably be on her side. Catullus is probably a bit unhinged. We've all been Catullus, and we need to watch ourselves when we're Catullus. Catullus is the guy who buys inappropriate gifts or or calls and leaves 50 messages. He's sliding towards stalker territory. And when we're lesbias, we've all been lesbias as well. I'm guessing if you've been around the love game long enough, you've been Catullus and you've been lesbia, whether you're man or woman here. We've all been lesbia, and when we are, we need to watch out for those Catulluses. Hopefully they stick to writing poetry and not turn to anything that would warrant a restraining order. But here in this safe space of poetry where the lines aren't hurting anyone, the feelings expressed by Catullus are compelling. It's the opposite of those poets who write, how grand it is to be here today on this occasion and come at you from a position of having figured everything out. They've got it all figured out. You want to know what love is? Here you go. You want to know what life is? Here you want to know what, what patriotism is? I have a poem for you. If that's Tolstoy, the Tolstoy position, the great omnipotent, omniscient, yeah, I should have said omniscient, not omnipotent necessarily. But Tolstoy sometimes seems sometimes seems both. He's definitely omniscient. Thundering down from on high, smarter than everyone, a godlike figure. Well, then this is Dostoevsky, the sulking man in the corner, more Judas than Jesus, less grace and more guile. It doesn't feel like the poet who's primly clearing his throat and delivering his neat little verse in exchange for a pat on the head or polite applause. It's a man who's screaming and clawing and scratching, hoping for, well, hoping not for a pat on the head, imagine something a little more explicit there to finish what he's hoping for. It reminds me sometimes of that that cranky, slightly weird neighbor next door who one night you wind up sharing a bottle of wine and he lets you know what he really thinks. One glass in, and he's telling you about the, the, how the mayors are dirty and corrupt. And two glasses in, and he tells you that his wife ran off with his best friend. And his heart's been broken ever since. He thinks he might never love again. You never knew how deep he is, how mordantly funny he is, and how deep he goes. Even though one night of this is probably enough, you will look back on that night with fondness and you'll chuckle about it. Maybe you'll tell your spouse about it or your friends because you all know what it's like to be a little miserable and it makes you laugh when someone else is even more miserable. Misery loves company, they say, but even more than that, it loves witnessing outright despair. It's not Catullus's only mode. He's not just a figure of fun. Here he is in number 101 at his brother's funeral. Catullus 101. I've traveled across oceans through many countries to come here, dear brother, to give you this poor gift, to stand at your grave and deliver some futile words over quiet ash. Life tore us apart, wrongly, deprived brother of brother, pointlessly, wrongly. 
except this, what desperate parents always offer, a funeral, a burial, and my sad gift. These words, soaked in tears, echoing into forever. Goodbye and goodbye, my brother. Farewell. Catullus didn't survive, of course, nobody does. His poetry almost didn't either. We know from what has survived is that he was a master of multiple styles, formally, and in this he was extremely influential. Virgil and Horace imitate him. Virgil even borrows entire lines from Catullus, just drops them into his own poetry. Ovid and other later poets revered him too. As a Latin poet, then, Catullus survived even before his actual poems were found. He survived through those other poets, just as we might hope to survive by the imprint we've made on those around us. But the poetry eventually made it through too, and so we can get a glimpse not just of Catullus's influence, but his greatness. And in this, the 20th century view of him still prevails. Here was a poet centuries ahead of his time, a lyricist who was intimate, open, honest, broken-hearted, lusty, angry, bitter, sulking, and compassionate, who felt things deeply and sometimes floated among the stars and sometimes rolled around in the mud. It didn't matter to him. He needed to make his point. His point even if this is not one he intended or could have intended, but it's the point I take from Catullus, is that Catullus was and is one of us, a modern sensibility in ancient Rome, a timeless soul in an achingly human body. Okay. It's going to do it for our episode on Catullus. Happy March, everyone. Did I say that last time? We're glad to have February in our rearview rear view mirror. And I'm looking forward to March. Well, not really. March is usually worse, even. But let's set that aside and pretend that all will be happy this month. We're going to have a spe- It'll be happy here on the History of Literature anyway. We're going to have a special look at Three Roads Back. Next time, I think, it's a book about how three authors responded to the greatest losses of their lives. And we'll have a discussion on creative people and creativity with an expert interviewer on those topics. Someone who has interviewed many creative people and asked them, how did you do it? We've got our episode on the wife of Bath with Professor Marion Turner of Oxford coming up soon. That is a fun one. And a great independent filmmaker will be here who is also a wonderful novelist, John Sayles. And Oscar Wilde will have another episode with Laura Lee, who has written a new book on Oscar Wilde. And maybe a little bit of The Art of War by Sun Tzu will have. We'll hear from a Russian poet who left the Soviet Union. And did I mention episode 500 is around the corner? Looks like that'll be a fun one. After that... We'll get to Persuasion by Jane Austen. Read that if you haven't read it in a while. We have a, a fun look at that in a three-episode version. Three, what a three-part episode, I should say. And Henry James coming up as well. Lots of great literature from all over the world. I hope you subscribe and come back and join us. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.